have a copy of the scriptures with you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews slowly for uh, a number of months now. And, of course, the major argument of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. And among the many arguments being made unto that end is that Jesus is the better mediator of a better covenant. And that covenant is the new covenant. We read in verse 6 of Hebrews 8, but now... He has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. And now he's going to explain this reality. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second because finding fault with them, and some translations read finding fault with it, that is the fault is either in the recipients of the Old Covenant because of their nature not yet being changed uh, by grace or the nature of that covenant itself. And that covenant was not a gracious covenant of salvation. Because finding fault with that Old Covenant and its community, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And now our text this morning. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time now to spend in your holy word and then to come uh, to the table uh, and to remember that blood of the new covenant that was shed. And Father, as we who have by grace been made partakers of that covenant, may we understand and rejoice in the superiority, this better covenant and these better promises which are ours in Christ Jesus. To magnify his work, we pray, exalt our Savior through the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, the text before us, which I have just read, contains a phrase that has kind of become a universal synonym among believers for conversion. So that when we have fellowship with a new believer, uh, it's very common for us, in fact, I, I, I hope there's not a time when it doesn't happen, that when we're meeting somebody who's in Christ for the first time or as we're getting to know them, that we will say something to them. We want to hear their story. We want to hear uh, how they came to faith. And we'll often describe it in this way. When did you come to know the Lord? Tell us about when you came to know the Lord. Or if they are describing, some of us, if we're describing something from our past, we might say, now, this or that happened before I knew the Lord. So that when did you come to know the Lord? 
or the knowledge of the Lord kind of becomes uh, the hinge of our lives, the swivel point of our lives. Now, I think this is a very good phrase, and it is primarily from this text, uh, if not exclusively really from this text, that the Bible speaks uh, in this way. Now, this expression is found in what we might call the Old Testament proof text of the assertion that the writer to the Hebrews has made that Jesus is the better mediator of a better covenant built upon better promises. And if someone were to say, prove it, he'd say, Jeremiah chapter 31 is the passage that shows us that this covenant is indeed better. And here are four of the promises that are indeed better. Now, again, the reason for this argument has already been articulated in our studies of Hebrews is that some first century Jewish churchmen were being tempted to reject Christ and the new covenant community in order that they might safely, in the political sense, return to the seemingly biblical Judaism, that is, a, a Bible-based yet Christless Judaism. Now, we can well argue that there is no such thing as a Christless, there certainly is no Christless Old Testament. There is nothing of the Old Covenant properly understood that is Christless. But the current argument that the New Covenant has better promises is again founded upon this revelation that God made to the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years earlier during the days of the Babylonian captivity. And in that revelation of the new covenant, Jeremiah, and hence the writer to the Hebrews, does state again these four superior blessings. Why is the new covenant better than the old? Because in the new, the law of God is placed in the mind and it is written in the heart. And in the new covenant, God takes his people in a far superior sense. So this language is Old Testament language. I will be their God and they will be my people. And now we come to consider that they will all know the Lord. And so as we come to this truth and uh, this blessing this morning, I want to consider it under three headings. I want to consider, first of all, its contrast and universality. Secondly, its essence. What does it mean to know the Lord? And then what is its blessing? Know the Lord, he says. <laughs> they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Now, this is said that there will no longer be the need for believers to teach their neighbor and their brother saying, know the Lord. I want to get one thing out of the way immediately. It's possible that in your studies, uh, if you're going to read a commentary or two on the book of Hebrews, it's possible that you'll come across somebody who will say that, one of the blessings of the new covenant is that there is no longer a need for teaching or instruction that brothers don't need to exhort and teach each other on the basis of this text. And I came across that this week. And I would have just said, if somebody had told me that, that that's so stupid that I surely don't need to address it. But apparently more than one commentator has come to some conclusion. Uh, and my argument against this is basically every other verse in the Bible. So... <laughs> <clears throat> so that when he's saying you don't need to teach your neighbor or your brother, he's not saying 
that Christians no longer need to be exhorted, no longer need to be encouraged, and that none of us have a part in each other's lives and even in helping each other know the Lord better. That's not what's being said. What is being said is that there was a covenant community in which there was the need to evangelize the members of that community. That is, that they were in the community and yet did not have a saving knowledge of the Lord. And that's contrasted now with the new covenant community. And so before we get into the specifics of what it means to know the Lord, we do need to deal with this contrast between the recipients of the old covenant, of which Moses was the mediator, the covenant made with the nation at Mount Sinai, and the recipients of the new, of which Jesus is the superior mediator. So again, he's answering the question, what makes the new better than the old? Just this. There were many, in fact, who lived under the old covenant, who enjoyed many of the blessings of the old covenant, but who did not, in the saving sense, know the Lord, nor were they, in this sense, known by him. And you see this explicitly laid out in a passage like Judges chapter 2. Many of you are aware uh, of this passage. We read in verse 8, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him <coughs> within the borders of his inheritance at Timnath, Harry's, in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, we read now, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of the Lord did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord who they did not know and did not now serve to anger. And so of a whole generation. Now, you get into a lot of what happened there, and there was seemingly a failure of one generation to another to say to his brother, and certainly to say to their children in the language of Deuteronomy chapter 6, to know the Lord and to teach their children the ways of the Lord. And as a result of that, a whole generation arises. They don't have a saving knowledge of the Lord. They serve other gods and provoke God to anger. Now, that reality laid out there in Judges chapter 2 is repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again till you come to the end of the Old Testament era. And there are certain passages that highlight this reality from time to time. You read it of certain individuals, even religious leaders, such as the sons of Eli, the high priest in the days of Hannah and of uh, young Samuel, in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 12, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Now it's going to be said of Samuel later on when Samuel first hears the voice of the Lord that he did not yet know the Lord. But there's a difference between that young unconverted person who had not yet entered into a true knowledge of the God who is <coughs> and those who were leading his worship. Uh, as sons of the high priest. 
The prophet Jeremiah said boldly in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 8, again, of, of those in leadership and those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after those things that do not profit. Now, if you don't understand this, this reality, this contrast, you're going to have a hard time understanding your Old Testament history and why it reads the way that it does. Because you ask the question, how can these people, if they are believers, how can a nation that was given the law, how can the nation who are said to be the people of God, those who have the tabernacle and the temple and revealed worship and revealed religion, why is it that repeatedly we read that they're drawn uh, after idols. And why is it that you read, uh, or you know, whether it's that or you read in the language of Isaiah, they draw near with their lips, but their hearts are far away. How could they be in the covenant and live in the land, the covenant land as it were, and yet not know the Lord? Well, because the old covenant was not a covenant like the new covenant. The old covenant was entered into by birth. It's how you got in. If you were a boy and you got circumcised, you were in. There's no question about your heart, no question about your faith, you're in. If you were a girl, well, you just were in. That's all you needed to enter the old covenant. So that the boast of many was that they were in because Abraham was their father. That is, they were his physical descendants. But again, that did not mean that they had the faith of Abraham. To have the DNA of Abraham does not necessarily mean that you have the faith of Abraham. They were his children, <coughs> but not children of faith. Not all of them. They did not know the Lord or love the Lord or obey the Lord. And if you were to look at today, the vast majority of those who are Jews, there is little to no religious affiliation, little to no striving after obedience as far as they understand it. But those living in what we will call Old Testament days, that is the days prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus and the establishment of the new covenant, were nonetheless in the covenant they lived for many years in the land and they enjoyed the fruits of the covenant, outwardly circumcised, and yet they were exhorted regularly to be circumcised, not in the flesh, but in the heart. That is, something in the heart needs to change. And John the Baptist, in his uh, warnings to his generation, he told them not to trust in their physical descent. You read this in Luke chapter 3 and verse 8. Therefore, he says, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. I can make a person with Abraham's DNA out of these stones is what he is saying there. And really what he is saying is what Jeremiah says in the new covenant, you don't need to do. 
that while you may need to give exhortations in regard to growth and forsaking sin and loving one another, you do not need to fundamentally say that there is not the fundamental suspicion that those in this covenant don't know the Lord. You don't need to say and speak to them the way that an old covenant prophet spoke to their people. So that John was only the latest in a long line of faithful believing Jews who are articulated here in this passage who were burdened for their brethren, burdened as Paul was for his kinsmen according to the flesh. And so you read the Old Testament prophets speaking to the people. In this broad sense, you call them the people of God, the covenant people. And they would say to them things like, tear your hearts and not your garment. Break up the fallow ground. Turn from your sin. Reject your idols. Know the Lord. That is in a real and personal and saving sense. Know the God who brought your fathers and mothers out of the land of Egypt. He needs to be your God in the fullest sense of that term. To own him and no other. To worship him and no other. Now this is more than a call to orthodoxy. I'm going to see that that's important, but it's more than that. James warns against those who would say that they believe that God is one. That is a good orthodox statement of the nature of the Godhead. That's good and that is wise and that is true. But he says even demons believe that. And that causes them to tremble. But there is something more than this, more than simply saying, I believe that the God of the Bible is God. That is essential. To believe in or give worship to a God of your imagination, a false God, is to lose your soul. But it is possible for one to believe much of truth. And even, as Jesus said to one in the Gospels, to be near the kingdom and yet not know the Lord. But Jesus gives a terrifying warning of what will transpire on the last day. Many, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, <coughs> and they will not enter the kingdom. Many who say to me, Lord, Lord, I will say, depart from me, not because they have lost their salvation due to some sin, but he says, I never knew you. For he says in John chapter 10 of his sheep, my sheep know me and I know them. They know me and they follow me. And then he says, and it is to them and to them alone that I give eternal life. Now in the actual new covenant, in the new covenant from God's perspective, every single person to whom the blood of Jesus is applied, who have, in the language we will look at, God willing, next time, who have all of their many sins forgiven. They have the law placed in their minds, written on their heart. God is their God. They are his people. And they all, all of them, all who have their sins forgiven, know him. That should be the universal testimony 
of every man, every woman, every young person entering into the membership of a church and certainly entering into our church. I can summarize all that I intend to press home this morning in these words. There are no people in the new covenant who do not have a saving knowledge of the Lord. And that is a contrast to many under the old covenant. Now, again, as we have already alluded, and as Matthew 7, which I quoted a moment ago, does allude, there may well be those who enter into the church and even into the leadership of the church, and they do so by way of profession and baptism, but who demonstrate through their life, through their impenitent pursuit of sin or their lack of fruit or lack of love, that they do not have the work of grace. It has never been done in them, and when that is discovered, it is the duty of the new covenant community to remove them from the physical, physical representation of that new covenant that is the church. The church is to be the physical embodiment of the promises and blessings of the new covenant. From the least of them, now, that may refer to the youngest, and I recognize that some say, well, see, there's your infants. You don't need to press that. But certainly to the youngest, it could, it, it could be that in, in some of these cases, or it may well refer to the poorest, or it may be a reference to those in Matthew chapter 25 that Jesus calls the least of these, my brethren, the poor, the sick, the naked, the prisoner, who have come to faith, they are my brethren, they are your brethren. And because they are your brethren, and because I have made them such by my grace, they know me. You don't have to be great to know the Lord. You don't have to be positionally great, financially great, societally great. From the least to the greatest, and we might say the most esteemed to the least esteemed, whatever it is, in this, they are all on equal footing. It's one of the truths brought out in the, gospel, or in the New Testament writings. There is an equal footing in grace. Male and female, slave and free, barbarian, Scythian, Jew, whoever it is, they all have this knowledge that we will come to consider more fully in a moment of what that is. So this is why... We here give testimony to the work of grace in our heart before one is brought into membership. So yes, we want, to we want to know, do you understand the fundamentals of the gospel? Do you believe the right things? But it's possible to believe the right things and yet have no saving knowledge of the Lord. But the testimony is that there was a time when the Jesus and the pages of the Bible who is the real and historical savior of sinners. There was a time when he was looked to, a time that he was called upon, a time that he was believed in and trusted in. And again, this is why infants are not and cannot be part of the church. This covenant is not like that covenant. That covenant was brought in by birth lines or bloodlines, the new covenant is brought in by means of the new birth. The call of the gospel in the gospel community is not ye must be born. It is ye must be born again. 
Now, having seen something of the contrast and universality, they all know me. Let's consider, secondly, its essence. So what does it mean to know the Lord? I, I would imagine everybody here of a certain age who is a Christian has used this phrase. Maybe just as I said, that's when I came to know the Lord. I came to know the Lord in the 1970s, well, you know, in the 80s, the 90s, in the 2000s, whatever it is, I came, I came to know the Lord. It's the dividing part of your life pre and post conversion. But what does it mean to know him? What are, we, what are we getting at here? When I ask you, do you know a certain person? You will sometimes answer, well, I know of them, maybe an historic figure. I know of them, but you say, but I don't. I don't really know them. If I were to say to you, there's some of you in the church right now who don't really know other people in the church, you know, because of this massive divide that's here between this side of the building and that side of the building, you know. You say, well, I kind of know know who they are, but I I don't really know them. Well, what does it mean to know the Lord? How do I know if I know him? Or if I simply know only about him? Now, this term, know, the Lord, is used uh, in regard to several things. Sometimes it's brought out in regard to the God in whom you trust. Is he the one true and living God, or is he an idol? There is also in this language the idea of mutuality, that this is a a two-way relationship. I suppose it's possible to know someone without being known by them, you know, at least to some degree, but that's not what's being said here. I mentioned this mutuality of language, and you see it in John chapter 10 and verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says in John chapter 10, in verse 26, now speaking to certain religious leaders, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And so there is a relationship of belief here into this knowledge of the Lord. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. His sheep, in contrast to others, believe in him and know him even as he knows them and and gives them eternal life. They know his voice. They know his truth. And when he speaks to them by his word and by his spirit, they follow. That marks them. It's part of what marks them in the shepherd-sheep relationship. Now, this word translated as know is is common in our Bibles. It's used over 200 times. Those of you who take Greek, gnosko, there uh, is the word. And it it can mean to learn, uh, to come to know, to get a knowledge of, to perceive, uh, to understand. Uh, And it is also, as some of you are aware, it was a Jewish idiom for sexual relations between a man uh, and a woman, or particularly a husband and his wife. Uh, Mary said, I've not known a man. When the angel uh, spoke to her, they came together and they knew one another. There was a language there of intimacy. What does it mean to know the Lord? Well, it is the opposite of ignorance and indifference and distance. 
Jeremiah fleshes this out when he says in Jeremiah chapter 9 and verses 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Do not let the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Now there's parallelism here. There's differences and distinction, but parallel. That he understands me and he knows me. That I am the Lord exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. And if you don't get that and if you don't understand that, it may well be you don't really know the Lord. Do you, do you know him? Do you, I'm going to use this language, do you understand him? You know what that's like? You get to know somebody. You spend time with them. You begin to understand their heart. You begin, in a sense, even to kind of be able to predict them a little bit. Because you know them. You know how they're going to respond because of a knowledge and an understanding. Now, because God is who he is, we cannot know him apart from his external revelation. And by that, I mean what he has written here. But also the internal revelation of himself. Because Jesus says, no one can know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. There must be a revelation inwardly by the Spirit, a quickening and a regeneration by which we come to understand God and to know God and to love God. You cannot know him truly or accurately if he does not reveal who he is to your mind through the word and to your soul by the spirit. I suppose it's possible to know who the Lord is, to give an orthodox creed like the demons do, and yet not know him in this, yet have no real heart knowledge of him, no desire to know him and to understand who he is and what he's like and no finding delight in that and no heart to deepen in that. For that is what it means to know the Lord. Do you have some knowledge of his heart and of his ways? Do you, do you get him? Do you see him as he is? And have you seen that the Savior is the only hope for your soul? That's the beginning. That's what happens when you begin to know him. It has to start there, going from darkness and ignorance and unbelief to seeing who he is and being drawn to who he is and going to who he is and trusting him and owning him as your own. So that Jesus could say in John chapter 17 and verse 3, this is eternal life. To know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is apart from the knowledge of God and apart from the knowledge of Christ, there is no eternal life. This knowledge of the Lord, which is saving and life-giving, is not static. It can be increased in. The prophet Hosea exhorted the people of his day in Hosea 6.3, let us know. And here apparently he's not just saying in regard to the way that Jeremiah pictures it in regard to a, an evangelistic call. 
But this is a call of repentance because the people had committed spiritual adultery. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is as established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Paul made the increasing knowledge of the Lord a prayer for the Colossian church. In Colossians 1, beginning at verse 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, <coughs> excuse me, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that you say, well, when I was 14 years old, and Mike says, when I was 14 years old, I came to know the Lord, and in the 46 years since then, I have, by God's grace, been increasing in the knowledge of God. He goes on to say, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. He says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, but also that you'll cre increase in the knowledge of him, that you will know him better. Now, this is not intended to be my uh, a New Year's message. I did that last week, but this would be a good one, wouldn't it? To say, as you think about and contemplate, what are your goals for the coming year? To say, I want to increase in my knowledge of God. Well, let's consider thirdly and finally here, I want to say something about its blessing. Now, I, I could just end here and say there's no salvation apart from it. So that if you have it, what a blessing, because you have eternal life. If you know the Lord, if, as you hear of this God, I was thinking that when we were singing Newton's hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. And, and Martin Luther had said at one point that the, the essence of religion is revealed in its pronouns. That is the ability to say, my God, my rock, my redeemer, my Lord, my savior, my light, my joy. To not, to, so that when you hear of him, I'm really debating using this illustration. I, I, I don't want to throw anybody off, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. So there's a silly Christmas movie that many of you may have watched over the last uh, few weeks or months, Elf, okay? And it tells the story of a, of a, of a, a human boy, a fantasy, of course, all of this, who gets uh, found by Santa and grows up uh, in, the North, in the North Pole. And then returns to the to the uh, among people. But at one point, there's a silly little line and people have you quote it all the time. Uh, you'll see it online where he is uh, going to a department store and somebody says Santa's here. And while little kids are like, "Yay!" He screams, "I know him. I know him. With I know him." There's a sense, brethren, that ought to be. When you read a, sing a song of the glory of our Redeemer, I know him. When somebody expounds the beauty of Jesus, I know him. When we sing of him, when we read of him, when we hear of him, when somebody can proclaim the Lord is not just a shepherd, 
but he's my shepherd. See, that's the blessing of the knowledge of God. I know him. There's no salvation apart from him. This is beautifully a part of the complex of salvation. God has given his salvation in such a beautiful and personal way that we could argue that it is not, from a human perspective, obviously the fact that God did it makes it necessary. But is it possible that God could save you, forgive you, bring you to heaven, and have you just be part of some indiscriminate mass you know, like the guy on the TV says when he's going to sell you a car down here at Jim Savo Ford, we love you. And you think, wow, I'm going to go down there. Hi, I'm that guy that you said you love. Like, look, kid, I didn't mean that. You don't really know me. And he says, well, listen, I just mean I'm going to sell you a car and maybe I'll make you a good deal. I don't really know you or care to know you. And God could say, listen, I will forgive you and allow you entrance so you can just enjoy heaven. But I don't know who you are. And you don't have to know me, do you? But God says, no, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. As you enter into this new covenant by the blood of that covenant shed for the remission and the forgiveness of sins. I'm not just going to put my law in your hearts and minds, that is, bring about a determination of holiness and a help for holiness, and I'm not only going to take you generally as my people and forgive you of my sins, I'm going to give you a heart to know me. And this is why Paul can speak the way he does in Philippians chapter 3, and you listen here, and brethren, this is no bare-bones recitation of the truth, simply of who Jesus is. This is a longing after decades to know Jesus better. Philippians 3. And the reason I emphasize decades is that, you know, sometimes you watch somebody who's a new believer, and there's kind of an excitement of a new believer. This isn't a new believer. Philippians 3, verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead not that I've already attained or am already perfected but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me that that's the kind of thing we're talking about here is to say after God willing for some of you if you live that long in the Lord 30 40 50 60 years in, as you pick up your Bible in the morning or afternoon at night, as you come to hear the Word of God, as you tune in to hear a broadcast perhaps, or come to God's house, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know this Christ. Yes, I want to be saved by him. I want to be found 
in his righteousness. I want his spotless robe of righteousness to be mine. But there is a glorious person who can be known. Again, it's possible to have a benefactor who does you good. And they do what they do either anonymously or they remain unknown. Your great aunt Martha died and left you $400,000. You say, I never even met her. So they pity you, they may give to you, but they don't know you, the real you. And you don't know or love them for who they are. But again, the knowledge of God is part of the complex of God's saving work. It is what, to borrow the language of some old writers, the sensible ground of our hope and comfort. Because, dear ones, how much confusion and pain comes from not knowing and understanding the character or being of God. The Lord may call you this year to walk through a very dark place. And to walk in that dark place without the knowledge of the character and the being of God. Without knowing something of his heart. Because there are times he's going to feel far away. And there are times that his will may seem to us capricious. But we ground ourselves and find our hope and comfort in the knowledge of who he's revealed himself in his word and by his spirit to our soul to be. The knowledge of the almighty is not some kind of theological word game or puzzle to know who God is. In his being, wisdom, power, justice, holiness, goodness, truth, and love is not only, again, theologically necessary, but it's the, this is what I'm getting at. It is, it is given and revealed so that hope can spring up in your soul. Not so you can pass a test, but for hope to spring up in your soul. Now, yes, pass the test. Know the truth. But if you're not comforted by that truth or challenged to deepen by that truth, to know that he knows you, that his thoughts towards you are innumerable, that he loves you, that he knows your days and your struggles and your sins and your strivings, that he knows your condition, that he knows your heart. In so many ways, this is the felt anchor of our soul. It's in the knowledge of the Lord. Not just in his ways that his purposes are good and right, but who he is. And again, to know that he sees me and knows me fully and yet loves me. And by his grace has caused me to love him and to want him. This covenant, as we come now again to see, was made by Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. And in a few moments after he made that covenant with his people and spoke those words of grace and shared bread and wine with them, he went to the cross. And there he shed his blood, the real blood of the covenant that we memorialize here and that we celebrate in the giving of this. But this, so think about it today. We focus so often, this blood is the covenant, new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins, but it is also for the knowledge of God. And so that you'll be his and he'll be yours. And so that your heart and life will be changed by him. And for those of you, as I said a moment ago, all of us are going to go through things in this coming year.
Some of us are going to have an anchor for our soul rooted in the knowledge of who God is. And this is among the many reasons. Of course, we want you to come to know him so that you're forgiven, so you're not under his wrath, so that your sins are taken away, so that you have a place in heaven. Well, that place in heaven might not be experienced for 70 or 80 years. It's a long time to walk in this life without an anchor to your soul. May you, be, may you find new life in knowing him. Well, let's pray and ask God's blessing on these things. Father, thank you for this time in your word and pray now that you would draw near and help and bless us as we come to the supper of remembrance. We pray these things in Jesus' name.